Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. But so you we're have to talk say, about. No, no, about, you have to. You have to say we are recording. We've got. Oh, I'm, I forgot. It's been so that's long. That's the whole, whole thing. Week. We. That's how right. we start every podcast, and that's okay. not here, and you and you lose the format. Come oh, on. I'm sorry, my bad. <laughs> and we are recording. There you go. I feel better now. It feels like it's more comfortable. And yes, thank you for joining us. This is uh, Twenty Seven Speaks. We don't have Annette Hinkle this week. She is on vacation. Uh, so I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. And uh, that was the voice of Bill Sutton. He is our managing editor. Hey, Bill. Hey, Joe. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And uh, we are joined today by our staff writer, uh, Stephen Coates. Hey, Steve. Howdy. And uh, with Steve are a couple of folks he spoke to this week. He's got uh, Frank Cavetto of who is the executive director of the South Fork Natural History Museum. Hey, Frank. Uh, nice to be here. Thank you. Good, good to have you here. We also have Jake Kushner, who is the reptile and amphibian specialist at the museum. Hey, Jake. How's it going? Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk eastern tiger salamanders, right? And that's, Steve, you wrote an article this week uh, that the uh, South Fork uh, Natural History Museum has gotten a grant uh recently to to aid the little creature that's a handsome little creature by the way good looking little guy to track the little guys to uh what was the name of the it was the 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 holloman price foundation which you should tell us a little bit about that frank uh when i've never heard of the organization before but you've received a, a three-year a grant to to track salamander movements tiger salamander movements with an idea to get a better sense of just where they are in the green belt. Yeah, so last year we were approached by one of the board members of the Holloman Price Foundation. And as a nonprofit organization, we're always being uh, asked, you know, what, what are the best ways to fund and support the organization? So um, the Holloman Price Foundation has given awards to scientific the science-based research. And one of the things that I thought that might be an interest to the Holloman Price Foundation to fund something that we had always thought about for many years was to, you know, use technology, radio telemetry to track Eastern tiger salamanders in the Long Pond Greenbelt Preserve, which is right behind the South Fork Natural History Museum. And they were really, you know, excited to hear that this would be groundbreaking data. There's really not really sufficient data on this particular species. This is a New York State endangered amphibian, a salamander that is here right in our backyards. Uh, there's proposed projects by PSE&G to, to horizontally bore through the Greenbelt system. Some of their uh, proposal indicates that the boring is to take place no more than 500 feet from a, a historical or active breeding breeding pond of the eastern tiger salamander. But to be honest with you, there's no data here that indicates that they utilize just 500 feet from their breeding ponds. 
So when I've been asked to go to public hearings on this project to try to fight and, uh, you know, be a, 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 against this project, I really didn't have the data to, to back my, 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 you know, my input. Um, so, so when I approached the Holloman Price Foundation saying this would be a great opportunity to collect the data so that we can inform the science, the science community, scientific community, and, you know, natural resource managers with sufficient data, then maybe they will, you know, think of other options rather than dig through the Long Pond Greenbelt. It's important to note, too, that, that these breeding ponds, I, I mean, the salamanders are are, are kind of married to these green these these ponds, right? They return to the same pond um, year after year to 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 breed, and if the pond disappears, then so do the salamanders, right? Yes, that's correct. So these salamanders breed in the same pond that they were born in. Um, so if those ponds disappear, they're going to show up. There's no pond, and they just won't breed. So over time, that population is going to decline and eventually cease to exist. So they're also a really um, particular pool. They're called vernal pools. Um, they're shallow and they actually fill with rainwater and snowmelt. They're not connected to the water table. Because of that, uh, they have periodic drying. Usually in the end of the summer, they actually dry. Because of that, there's no fish in the pond. So it's a really safe place for these salamanders to lay their eggs. So it's a kind of a sensitive and unique uh, habitat that they utilize to breed. And, and the breeding takes place underwater, right? I mean, the, the, uh, the, 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 they drop the eggs underwater and and they're and the and and they you know they they start to grow underwater correct yes yeah, so these are called mole salamanders and we call them that because they spend most of their time underground um they're fossorial but in late winter early spring here we start to see uh tiger salamanders around january january through march at night during heavy rains they're going to pop out of their burrows and they're going to travel to the pools to breed um, females will lay big gelatinous egg masses underwater attached to sticks and twigs. They're going to hatch as little larvae breathing through gills living in the pond. And as the pond dries, they're going to metamorphosize, lose their gills, and then move on to land. I'm curious, is, uh, is that an area where we're seeing uh, climate change affecting the, the, vernal, the vernal ponds? Is, is, is it getting harder and harder for those ponds to, you know, are, are, they, are they drying up? I think I, I, if I can interject, I would think that with climate change around here, we might see vernal ponds remaining wet longer because it seems to me that we're seeing more rain, you know? Yeah, they're really tied to to rainfall and snowmelt for sure. So uh, if we start to get more, you know, drought type periods, that's definitely going to affect the ponds um, as well as less less snow might make an impact. But I think rainwater is, is really important for filling those ponds. So Whichever way uh, it's going more or less rain, it, it will definitely impact the ponds for sure. And I think the breeding season, because uh, they're temperature driven and also photo period as well, which is the amount of, of daylight, but definitely temperature and that moisture is, is that big stimulating factor to get them to move into the pond. So I think it could also alter the time that they breed as well. Can I have a question about about the, the eggs? Uh, do they, are there... Um... Uh, um, I can't think of, the, of, of what's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> Sorry. Um, predators? Uh, yeah. Are there predators who, who eat the eggs? Uh, definitely. Some invertebrates in the ponds for sure eat them. Um, I would think even some maybe larger mammals like raccoons off the edge of the ponds as well. I would 
I would think that's why the fishless aspect is so key because fish would definitely be a large predator. Right. Those things. Okay. A lot of good nutrients, um, nothing to defend them. They're gelatinous uh, all basically. So, If you had to estimate how many tiger salamanders are there in the green belt? I wouldn't, <laughs> I honestly wouldn't even know where to start. That's I mean, there's a, a super large number, kind of a smaller number. I know they're endangered. So it, it's, Definitely a smaller number here um, on the Greenbelt is kind of the edge of is where here on Long Island, we're on the extreme edge of their range. They're usually found more south and kind of west. So we're already on the edge of the range. And then all the way up here on the east end, the Greenbelt is definitely the extreme edge of their range. So I would think the populations are definitely, definitely lower. It's really tough to get um, population estimations for them just because they're fossorial. So a project like this will definitely help because uh, we'll be able to keep track of individual salamanders. So that'll definitely help get a, a better gauge of, of how many salamanders might be using these pools. In in broad strokes, though, Jake, are we talking about single digits? Are we talking about dozens? Are we talking about hundreds? Would... Yeah, I would think hundreds at, at least for sure. Yeah, I would think so. Definitely. You know, the objective of this study is to track their movements in the area around their breeding ponds. You know, it's not about um, population estimation. That could be something down the road as we proceed with the data. But right now, it's to track their movements and how much habitat they utilize around their breeding ponds. That's the goal and the, you know, the key to this, this study. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks is brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books. Independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. They buy books. Collections, libraries, individual titles, very easy process. They handle everything. Do you have books to sell? Call or email today or visit SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations, including office positions. And, and there's some some discussion about how far out they go from the from the breeding pounds and how big that their individual habitat is, correct? Yeah. Just just a quick example. A few years ago, I was driving out the museum onto the turnpike and I saw something wiggling across the road. And I stopped and it was an eastern tiger salamander that was crossing mm. the road, most likely looking for a wetland or something, but it was pretty over 500 feet from its from a breeding pond. I, I got to interrupt you, Frank, because yeah. this opportunity doesn't arise very often, but so why, why did the, the eastern tiger salamander cross the road? You have, so you have an answer to that. <laughs> to get to, the, to, get to look, another wetland. He was looking for another wetland. That's yeah, that's, right. that, that's my guess, you know. All right. Yeah, and, but I think the, the 500 foot thing, you know, yes. is it's just like you the towns and villages will have like a 100 foot setback for wetlands for building, you know, and it's like it's 500 feet give or take whatever you know i mean well there's a reason why they're declining right even though <laughs> right. even though you see and it's mostly urbanization it's mostly overdevelopment that's habitat destruction is the key so when you 
when we do surveys with groups into the into the woods at night, you know, around these breeding ponds, you see lights from houses not that far from the breeding ponds. You know, that has an effect on that on that pool and the habitat that is around that pool. So we really need to protect not just the breeding pond, we need to protect a lot of the area around the breeding pond. And I think I personally feel it's more than I feel it's more than a thousand feet around a breeding pond is mm. a decent amount of 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 land that needs to be preserved in order to sustain this population. Do I remember that at one point in the past there was a conversation about trying to put some type of a tunnel under the Bridgehampton Sag Harbor Turnpike to allow the the tiger salamanders to cross more safely? There was some talk about that, right? Yeah, I think that was um, more for turtles. No, I think it was just a, a wildlife crossing uh, idea, not just for salamanders. Not just for salamanders, but that would have yeah, been I beneficial. Think... The turnpike, I would think, would be very dangerous. Yeah, but here's the thing. The salamanders are not going to know where that culvert is to cross the road. You know, I mean, that that whole green belt runs parallel to the turnpike. There's wetlands all throughout that 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 environment. And if those breeding ponds are not there for the salamanders to go into to, to do their reproductive cycle, some will leave the area to look for another wetland and they're not going to know to go to the culvert to cross the road. They're just going to go and, and just try to find a wetland on the other on the on the west side of the turnpike. Plus, they and, got little legs. It takes a long time to cover a lot of ground. <laughs> uh, actually, that's one of the questions I had for Jake is, so how much ground do these salamanders cover? They, they doesn't seem like they should be able to wander very far with those little tiny legs. <laughs> So I think most of their movement um, when they're not in the ponds actually takes place underground. So they do use tunnel systems and burrows, um, things, you know, systems for moles. So I think that gives them a the ability to move longer distances than we might think. Um, it's, they're relatively safe down there. On the surface, movements are really dangerous. A lot of predators, birds, raccoons, they might have to cross roads. They can be hit by cars. But I think they're able to get farther from the ponds um, then that 500 buffer, then we realized because of their ability to use those underground tunnel systems. So I think it's pretty safe. Um, and they can move, they can get moving. They're not as slow as we might think, but they are small. Tiger salamanders are though one of the larger salamanders in the US. They can get up to 13 inches. Usually they're only around seven or eight here, um, but they do have the ability to, to move. They can, they can run, they can move and underground, it's pretty safe for them to travel. Hmm. Interesting. What other kinds of salamanders do we have out here? Uh, we have a couple mole salamander species, so they belong to the same family. We have the marbled salamander, we have blue spotted salamanders in Montauk, um, and spotted salamanders, which are pretty common. Uh, we have a couple other species as well, the leadback salamander. Those we can find flipping logs and things like that. Those are the one of the most common salamanders we'll see. And then we also have a salamander called the four-toed salamander. Uh, I think that may be it for us here. You know, what's great about as well as the Eastern Newt, which is a, a fully aquatic salamander. Are, are any of no. those endangered or or just uh, just the Eastern Tiger salamander? Just the Eastern Tiger is endangered. The blue spotteds are a species of special concern. Um, in Montauk is one of the few pure genetic populations of blue spotted salamanders. They can hybridize with another species. So that's a, a protected population, but no, none of the other salamanders are endangered. In fact, spotteds are are somewhat common, um, as well as those leadback salamanders in forest areas. 
Do they all rely on vernal pools or do they have different um, mating abilities? Yeah, that's a good question. So all the mole salamanders are what we call vernal pool obligates for the most part, uh, which means they they require vernal pools to breed. So our mole salamanders are definitely going to use those, but leadback salamanders actually breed uh, right on land and four-toed salamanders will use wetlands, but um, they, they're not in vernal pools. They're sort of different types of wetlands. You know, one of the things that I think the audience should understand is that all of these animals are glacial relics from the Ice Age thousands of years ago. Oh, really? That's fascinating. Yeah. So they're not like introduced. They've kind of evolved in this system, in this ecosystem here on Long Island. And, you know, the areas that we do surveys in is known as a came and kettle topography landscape that was left from the glaciers thousands of years ago. And came and kettle mean like knobs and depressions in, in the landscape. And those depressions are either coastal plain ponds, which are attached to the aquifer under Long Island. I don't know if people know that under Long Island, there are 70 trillion gallons of fresh water that is our most valuable natural resource on Long Island. You know, that is the most valuable natural resource that we have here on Long Island is our drinking water and our fresh water system under our feet. And then we have vernal ponds, which are depressions that have a lens underneath it. Either it's sand or clay that hold water when we have snow melt or rain. And those are the vernal ponds. And then we have depressions that don't have a lens underneath it that don't hold water. So if you see in areas that you hike through in the Long Pond Greenbelt and in the moraines on the Ronkonkoma Moraine, you'll see a lot of all these different depressions. Some have water and some don't. It's a wonderful wonderful geology here on, on, the, on the east end because they're vernal ponds i wonder are they they're probably less susceptible to the kinds of pollution that that we have in the other ponds right Is, or or am i wrong about that um i mean because hmm. they they they're not really going to be getting like runoff and things all year round no water there but the animals that use them are particularly sensitive um more than uh like like a bullfrog who's going to be in a coastal plain pond they're usually really um sensitive more so than other species so even though the um the environment itself might not be getting that pollution all year long they're extremely sensitive to any pollution there that is there and so, you know when you go hiking a lot of these 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 trails are are about to properties and you'll be walking along say in the early spring and you'll see this incredible patch of green with a nice big shingled house behind it and you know that it's not a organic lawn you know well, i've mm -hmm. been we've been surveying with the president of our board andy saban who's one of the co-founders of this organization and for 50 years he's been surveying wetlands throughout the east end of long island and there are times when i go into the woods with him and he asks me, and it's sad because he asked me, when did that house, when did that house get built here? You know, he used to, he used to survey ponds that never had houses around it years ago. And now he's seeing a lot of homes that are built around the ponds. And it's sad that, you know, all this effort, conservation efforts that Andy and, you know, environmentalists have put their efforts into sustaining habitat, you know, it's just, it's a, it's an uphill battle for, for conservationists such as ourselves to try to protect that land, you know? Those manicured landscapes definitely all pesticides and fertilizers and things will definitely end up in those pools and they're going to either kill off the invertebrates or um, the salamanders themselves are really sensitive. Uh, they absorb water and anything in the water directly through their skin. They have the really high, you know, 
chance of coming in to contact with toxins from the environment. So that's a huge problem. And the, also the problem with protecting those vernal pools is that they're seasonal. Um, so we people might not always know they're there. If a property is surveyed at the end of the summer, um, you might not know that there's a pond there and then properties get built. Um, so that's one of the big issues is that they're seasonal and they tend to be small. Um, most wetlands here in New York State are protected, but that's on their size. So vernal pools are actually too small to fall under that kind of blanket protection for wetlands. So it's it's really kind of tough to protect those from, you know, all development around, which leads to pollution. And some of the pools we see are filled with like, um, like, you know, huge kind of algae blooms from all the nutrients that are running off from people's yards. So it's definitely a big problem for those pools. You know, the amphibians are indicator species like birds are, you know, if you yep. start seeing less of them, that's a sign to us that something's wrong with the environment. So canaries, canaries in the coal mine. Basically. Exactly. That's exactly what they are. You know, um, their skin is so sensitive and permeable that they're going to be the first ones to be affected by any toxins or mm -hmm. any environmental impacts that humans are putting on the environment. And, and we, we're seeing that. <laughs> it's not like, you know, this is something that we have to watch out for. It's happening now. So we have to really just do what we need to do to protect them for, for the future. You mentioned Andy Sabin. He still leads uh, these hikes to go out and look for tiger salamanders, right? He does that fairly regularly. He does. Andy leads about three or four uh, reptile and amphibian programs each year for the museum. And Jake has been working with Andy on all those programs and they're well attended. Andy is passionate about reptiles and amphibians. And when he, when he leads a program, he transfers just positive energy to the group, especially the children. You know, he has a special passion for these animals that you can see the enthusiasm that he has when he goes into the woods at night looking for these salamanders and, you know, giving that experience and, you know, that up close encounter with with the groups. It's it's a wonderful, magical moment. If He's I could great. put in a plug, if I could put in a plug, if you are out there in, in, in Radioland, um, attend take take part in one of these salamander hikes they are really cool it's yeah. just a really cool thing to do how do you find those salamanders on those hikes i'm curious i mean i guess you probably sort of know where to look yep so we we have our uh our walks around the time that they're actually going into the pools otherwise it would be really difficult to find them um underground so they travel in, in sort of large numbers, they're triggered by the same kind of environmental factors. So a lot of them end up in the ponds at the same time. So then we're able to go to the ponds. It's night. We're able to use our flashlights to actually spot them swimming through the water. And then we could scoop them up with a net. Yeah, hmm. cool. Yeah, and it's not like you catch dozens of them, though. But, I mean, it's when you see one, it's like, oh, my God. Yeah, last week or two weeks ago, Jake led a group to one of our vernal pools in, in search of a spotted salamander breeding activity and we hit it peak we hit it at peak and there were spotted salamanders all over the vernal ponds we only collected like two or three to bring to the shore so we can show the group what the animal looks like yeah. but there was a lot of activity wow. on in the pond there you know you have a small window of opportunity to see these breeding behaviors after a few weeks after they go in the ponds and do their thing they come out of the ponds and they go back underground for the rest of the year so Luckily, Jake and Andy and the experience of surveying over the years, we kind of have an idea of when they're going to be active and we can do programs for the community.
this is Catherine Manu, and I'm the editor of the Sag Harbor Express and co-publisher with my husband, Gavin, of the Express News Group. Local community news matters more than ever, with misinformation spreading constantly across the internet. We live in the communities we cover. We are your neighbors, your friends, your family. We tell the good stories and, unfortunately, the bad. We focus on your triumphs and losses. But we can't do this without our subscribers. To subscribe, please visit 27east.com slash subscribe. And thank you for your support. Do you, anecdotally, do you have an idea if the population is doing better or worse lately? Um, Just well, anecdotally. I know that's kind of the point is you probably don't have any real in-depth uh, but do you have just anecdotally? Do you have an idea? Um, definitely. We like Andy started surveying uh almost close to fifty years ago. Probably we have notes going really far back, um, eighties, nineties, two thousands, and everything. So I think definitely some um locations that used to have breeding salamanders, we go and we don't find any evidence of mm-hmm. eastern tiger salamanders anymore. Mm-hmm. So I would, they're definitely on the decline, unfortunately. And I think some of the populations altogether at the breeding pools are disappearing. Um, some ponds where Andy in the past would find, you know, really large amounts of breeding salamanders. We just, we, we don't see any evidence, no egg masses, no salamanders. So they're definitely on the decline for sure. And I think mm-hmm. um, in some areas, if it's not protected pretty severely. Like we have records from Helmuth from back in the 1930s where he found blue spotted salamanders at Moore's Woods on the North Fork in Greenport. And we've gone there every several years to hope hope to find some <laughs> blue spotted salamander life there, but that's not because of the overdevelopment that's taken place around that habitat. Just hard for them to find places to, to breed, I'm guessing, right? You said they move around in search of places though, right? So they, they may have vacated a spot to try and go find a better spot. No, no, they, the, they go back, right? To the no, same. They, they go back to the same one until that that one's gone. And then yeah, they, for the they may wander around a little bit, but for the most part, they're they're you know going to be going back to that same kind. I of see. Area. So that's definitely the problem. If there's nothing there, they might you know try to take a little walk around. Um, but for the most part, definitely, I think the the majority of them just go back to that same exact pond. If, they were born if in. their breeding pond that they were born in is dry when they're reproductively mature and they go back to that pond and if it's dry, they won't breed. They'll just wait until the, the next year if for rain yeah. and snow melt to occur to, to fill those ponds again, then they'll give it another shot. You know, it's not like it just in, just because the uh, vernal pond is dry one year doesn't mean that ends that particular population. They will hold on to the their breeding behaviors and and try again next year, you know. So if, if that pond becomes it becomes developed uh, and lost, I mean they're they're not going to find another pond. They're just not going to breed, right? Yeah, most yeah. likely. Yeah. I was told that maybe a, a couple of salamanders may just by you know evolutionary you know internal instinct may leave the area and try to find another pond to continue that that population, but you know, chances are it's, he's not going to find or she's not going to find one. And that's one of the problems with the salamanders. Some of the, like a uh, frog species and things, they'll kind of hop, hop around, find a new pond and they'll, they'll be happy. They'll breed. They'll, you know, continue that, that population, but things like salamanders for the most part, they're just really limited to that pond they were born in. Hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the transmitters and how you're going to 
insert them and all that? Yeah, we. I picture a little Fitbit, <laughs> a little yeah. tiny Fitbit that fits around the little the little uh, wrist, a little paw. Yeah, yeah. these yeah. are actually because of their um some animals are uh, like the actual tag is placed on the outside of their body, but because of their life cycle, the their burrowing um ability, you can't really attach things externally. Um, it's going to get pulled off or it's going to, you know, create some type of issue. So this um, years ago, they came up with a new technique and it's actual surgical implantation. Um, so you make an incision in their body cavity uh, and then slide the transmitter. It's extremely small. Um, and there's a certain amount of weight that it can be based on the weight of the animal. You don't want it above a certain percent of their body weight. So these, I believe, are less than 2% of their body weight super mm. small, super light. Um, and they're actually implanted in their body cavity. Um, then they're, you know, sutured back up. Salamanders have a really amazing healing capacity. Um, so, you know, you, you keep them and treat them to, you know, make sure there's no infection and then you release them, but they have an extremely, uh, amazing, like regenerative and healing ability. So you're able to surgically implant, um, suture them back up, you know, treat, make sure there's no infection and then release them perfectly fine. It has a really high uh, success rate um, and, and a very, very low mortality rate from the actual surgery. Salamanders mm -hmm. might die once they're released from predators, things like that. But from the surgery, it's extremely low. It's really safe and effective method. So we're, we're really. And how, how, how many can you do at a time and how long is it going to take to, to, to target the entire population or the goal, yeah, the goal is to tag, to implant 25 eastern tiger salamanders annually. And that okay. is both adults and juveniles. Some juveniles will be, you know, uh, deployed with the tags in late summer when they come out of the ponds, if we can find them. But starting next year during the breeding season, Jake will be out collecting and uh, deploying the tags in, in adult salamanders when they come out of the out of the ground to, to head to their breeding. So ground. do you do that in the field or do you have to bring the salamanders back and do the? Uh, no. Yeah. It's gotta be a sterile environment for the, for the actual surgery for sure. We have to be trained as well. Jake's going to get trained by veterinarians. This is all part of the protocol and the guidelines for the, for this animal as an endangered species. It needs to be, you know, approved by the New York state DEC. We have to have uh, an endangered and threatened scientific permit that we're applying for now. So this first year, in 2023, it's just to get all the training and the supplies and everything in order for the upcoming 2024 breeding season. Well, Jake will will start collecting adults and and start implanting them with the with the transmitters. And That's so cool. You're doing a project with where you're handling live animals, you you have to you know submit your protocols and have those approved by you know that that kind of body who approves those. So it's it's you know quite the process just to get going. Yeah. And it's it's very strict you know with with uh, you know, to, for the safety of the animals, especially being an endangered. Yeah. I was going to say, Jake, my hand would be, my hand would be shaken. My hand <laughs> would be shaken because it's a, it's a federally protected animal that you're, yeah. you're working with there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, these are actually not listed federally. They're state endangered. State oh, endangered. it's a state endangered. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And Eastern tiger salamanders in all of New York state are only found on Long Island. There are a couple of historical records in the mid 1800s. There were two found in Albany. And then I think in the early 90s, there was some evidence that one may have been found in Nassau County hmm. in 1990, but mm -hmm. I don't know how, how that viable that record is. 
Well, I wonder, you know, you guys had that program a couple of years ago where you were tagging sharks. Um, we still do. You had, you had a display where you could follow the shark. And I wonder, is there anything like that that might be uh, done with this so that people can? Maybe in the future. Well, the, the one thing, though, is with the locations of the tiger salamander and the data about these um, critters, since they are state endangered, we're not able to really share as much uh -huh. specific data with the public as uh, as maybe some other species out there, um, just because they are sensitive and and being state endangered have to be have to be careful with um, you know the way information is presented. So a lot of the specific stuff is kind of kind of kept under under wraps with the DEC and, yeah, and for, organizations like that. For now, all of our data will be submitted to the scientific community, you know, to kind of so we can nail down you know and track this this animal for the sustainability purposes you know so that's important that we don't disclose any information that might jeopardize the habitat because there are people out there that may want to go into those vernal ponds and collect these salamanders yeah for, for black market purposes it happens all the time so Got we it. have to be sensitive to that Frank, I'm curious, you, you mentioned it right up the top that this is coming, this study will come at a time when you're having the conversation about the LIPR pro proposal for a transmission line that would impact some of the area that we're talking about here. Was the grant application driven by that at all? I mean, I... You, you, you'd like to be able to make a, a stronger case, I'm thinking, that's more scientifically based to try and uh, convince LIPA that that's not, or PSEG, I'm not sure which, which entity it is, but to, to convince them that putting a transmission line underground through this area definitely will impact this creature. So the, the writing of the proposal started off about the significant, significance of the study site, the Long Pond Greenbelt Preserve. And then we then we started to talk about the life cycle of the animal and how it's New York State endangered. And then as part of the the push to get funding or to get approved for this project, we had to bring up the PSENG proposed project and lack of data for the for the area that they're proposing for this transmission cable. And I think that's what sparked Holloman Price Foundation to move forward on, on our proposal. So that was a big part of the push to get to get funded for this are project. you going to get it in time to have an effect uh i don't know that's a good question psc and g right now i think are at the point where they're going to make a decision either to drill through the green belt or they're going to go up the turnpike and then head east on 27 towards the other transfer station east hampton so the 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 proposal is to go from the big champion sag harbor turnpike to buell uh Boulevard, I think the true lane, Buell Lane. Thank you, uh, in East Hampton for these underground transmission cables. You know, the other thing too that I I made aware to at the public hearing was not only are the Eastern Tiger Salamanders going to be affected by this horizontal drilling, but all the other you know burrowing animals such as reptiles and and snakes and turtles. You know, they they are very sensitive to vibration. And who knows what these electromagnetic fields, you know, what are they going to sense here when these big cables 
are run underground. That I think is going to be a big inhibiting factor as if these animals are sustainable or not. I mean, it's going to affect them quite a bit. I'm curious, Frank, is the, the route that they're looking at down the turnpike more acceptable in your eyes, or is that still a problem? I, I feel that's the best option for this project. It's paved. It's already been disturbed. Why go through the green belt and disturb a natural environment when you can just run your pipes right up the up the turnpike and onto Montauk Highway? It's you know, it's it's. I think it's a no brainer as far as an environmentalist, uh, you know, an impact to the environment as an environmentalist. Let's just go up the turnpike and move east on on twenty seven. So, and, and one of the things we're looking to get out of this project is um, data where we can kind of help create a set of guidelines for future um, development projects and things like that. That way in the future, especially development within the green belt, which is uh, actually considered one of the most biodiverse habitats in New York state. Um, it's really unique and special. That way in the future, we have a set of guidelines that we can use that are backed up by scientific data that can recommend, you know, maybe different buffer zones for these type of pools. And that way we can protect them going forward as well for future development that we might. Yeah, and and it's, it's important data to have in general, right? You just yeah, don't have this yeah, data. Like, Steven, mm -hmm. you mentioned the SOFOSHOCK research program that we're doing here. And, you know, the whole idea of collecting form, the, the natural resources will be able to use our data in order to make the wise decisions necessary to, to preserve the environment. Right. That's the whole. That's that's the whole shebang here. It's not about SOFO. It's not about acknowledgement of what we're doing. It's about protecting the environment. Well, congratulations on getting that grant. I mean, that's a that's a big deal, and it's a yep. it's a cool cool project. And I think uh... I just want to say that you know we're very lucky to have Jake on our team. Jake put together the proposal. He did the research on all the instruments and, and the, the technology that we need to do this study. And I just want to thank him for all his efforts into making this possible. So it's great to have Jake leading this survey. And we look forward to informing the community in the future as to what we're finding, you know. Go, go Jake. Nice, nice <laughs> to you. Thank you. I'm very excited to be a part of this. And uh, thank you for having us on to give us a chance to talk about. This. Yeah. And, and we certainly want to stay involved as you move forward with the project and report on it as, as it progresses. And I think it's really fascinating. I think our re readers are going to really want to know what's uh, what you're finding. Yeah, and, and, and we're always available for phone calls. You know, if people have any interest in learning more about this, we're here every day from nine to five. So if anybody's interested uh, in learning a little bit about more about the animals and the salamanders and their life history, but about this project, don't hesitate to call us at the museum anytime. Great. Wonderful. Frank Quivetto and Jake Kushner, thank you. We appreciate your time. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having awesome. us. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everyone. Yep. Thank I still you. think the little Fitbit is something we should at least look into. I know, I will, I will, it. I promise. Yeah, I just think it would be stylish, if nothing else. And, you know, the what I was thinking, love it. What I was wondering about was like, say a, say a tiger salamander rears his head out of his burrow and a <laughs> great horned owl, and a great horned owl swoops down and eats him. And now the 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 tracker is showing the salamander flying. We've reached yeah, it. Uh, kind of throw all the data off. No, is, we do actually do some ground truthing. So we have to get out there and, and physically kind of find the salamander and <laughs> checks to make sure they're not in, uh, you know, in somebody's belly or something like that, for sure. 
You're going to get up close and personal with a lot of these salaries. <laughs> I have it's a feeling. Cool. Yeah. I'm, excited. Yeah. I'm excited. Good stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Great. Thanks, guys. Right, well, thank you, gentlemen. Right, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.